Our passage today is Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Church, please be seated. Good morning to all of you. Did you enjoy that extra hour of sleep last night? Or were there some in your house whose body was still used to getting up at the normal time and so didn't really matter that you had an extra hour? Mm. You know, the, uh, the 19th century... Irish playwright Oscar Wilde once said this, there are two great tragedies in life. The first is not getting what you want. The second is getting it. What do you think of that? Now, I know where Oscar Wilde is coming from. He's saying here that you can strive for something, you can have a dream, you can have a goal, you can devote your life to something, and if you don't get it, you'll be devastated. But he's also saying if you do get it, well, you find that it's not what you thought it would be, and so you're equally devastated. Those things, according to Oscar Wilde, are the great tragedies in life. But I'd like to say this. There's a greater tragedy in life than either getting or not getting what you want. And that tragedy is not getting what our souls truly need. Jesus Christ. And the way we do that, the way that we fail to grasp what our souls truly need is by rejecting him. Rejecting Jesus is the greatest tragedy of all. We're in the book of Mark. We've been in it for almost a year now, if you can believe that. And as we've worked through the book of Mark, we've come to the place that we call Jesus' Jerusalem ministry. And there's a reason why Mark put this here. Jesus' Jerusalem ministry comprises chapters 11 through chapters 13, and nothing that's in the Bible is just there because. There's a reason why Mark has written this here, and the purpose that he's written behind it is to show us that Jesus is rejecting Jerusalem. More specifically, Jesus is, rep- is rejecting what Jerusalem represents. Jerusalem in the first century, the temple was there. 
And the temple stood for, for the Jewish worship. It stood for the place where God was. But Jesus is rejecting the temple. Why? Because his death and resurrection are about to make the temple obsolete. Very soon, there will be no need for the temple. And we've seen that. And then last week, we also saw that Jesus is rejecting the religious practices that are happening at the temple. The worship in Jerusalem had become segregated. It had become segregated by both ethnicity and gender. You could only go so far in the temple if you were a Gentile. You could only go so far in the temple if you were a Jewish woman. You could only go so far in the temple if you were a Jewish man. The temple was separated by these courts. And today, we're going to see that along with rejecting the temple, along with rejecting the temple services, Jesus is going to reject the temple leadership. In fact, that's the focus of the next chapter, chapter 12. Jesus is rejecting the temple leadership. And if you think about it, that's only the natural outcome of rejecting the temple and all it stands for. You can't reject the temple and all it stands for and yet accept the temple leadership because if the temple leadership had been doing the job, then everything else would have fallen into place. But we saw last week that their leadership was corrupt. We saw that they weren't following the law, not with their hearts. They were living in one way and yet teaching. If you just follow the sacrificial systems, you're going to be okay with God. It doesn't matter how you live on the outside. But you see, Jesus doesn't jive with that. He doesn't want religious rituals. He wants the whole self. Jesus wants people who desire him from their hearts. And the religious leadership doesn't desire him at all. In fact, we've seen all along that they've rejected Jesus. And we're going to see in the next few weeks, they continue that rejection, and they're plotting his death at the same time. So today, this is what I want to talk about. What happens when someone rejects Jesus? Soberingly, he rejects them. And that's what we're going to see today. And it starts with this question of authority. So here's your first point from our text this morning. We reject Jesus when we reject his authority. You can't accept Jesus and yet reject his authority. Look at me with the text. We're in Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. We've been saying over and over for the past couple of weeks now that Jesus focuses Jerusalem, specifically the temple. He and his disciples are operating in this pattern where they go to Jerusalem and they minister there, but then they retreat back to Bethany and they spend the night. So it's the next day, they're back at Jerusalem, they're back at the temple, no surprise, and Jesus is approached by representatives of three groups of people here. Did you see that? He's approached by the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Who are they? Well, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders are three groups that make up the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was the Jewish high court. It was made up 
of 71 members. And what they did, they acted as a political and religious buffer between Israel and Rome. If you had an issue, if there was a legal issue or a religious issue, they would go to the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin would deal with it unless it was outside of their jurisdiction. For instance, the Sanhedrin had no authority to execute someone. They had to go to Rome for that. Now, specifically here, the chief priests were priests who had permanent temple responsibilities. They worked in the temple. They were permanent. They were not volunteer. That's what, that was who they, they were. The scribes, we've seen the scribes a lot through our study in Mark. They were teachers of the law. They were legal experts. They expounded the law to the people. But there's this other group simply called the elders. Who were they? They were lay people. Lay people who served on the Sanhedrin, and they were often from wealthy families. So we have representatives of these three groups that come to Jesus at the temple. Now, this should be no surprise. It should be no surprise that they come. In fact, the disciples should have had red flags going off in their mind, and the reason is because Jesus predicted this would happen. He said that these three groups would be responsible for his crucifixion. He said that in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. So we should have no surprise that once Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he gets to the temple, here come these three groups. Now, they pose a question to Jesus And it's it's a twofold question. It's by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? In other words, what gives you the right? Who gives you the right to do what you're doing? They say these things. Now that term, these things, that is, 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 is a direct reference and an indirect reference. It's first of all a direct reference to Jesus cleansing out the temple that we saw from last week. I mean, you can imagine that created quite a stir Jesus throwing people out of the temple. So they're coming to him and they're saying, what gives you the right to do these things? And in fact, last week, you may remember verse 18, the chief priests and scribes heard that Jesus had done that and they were seeking a way to destroy him. And of course, that naturally leads to this conversation we're having today. But the cleansing of the temple, that's that's the direct reference to these things. These things you could take all the way back to Mark chapter 2. What happened in Mark chapter 2? The paralytic was healed. You might remember that from months ago we talked about that, but what was the first thing that Jesus did before he healed the paralytic? He forgave the man's sins. And the scribes didn't like that. And then all along the way throughout Jesus' ministry, he's doing things that they don't like. And you might remember some of these things. They had a problem with Jesus fellowshipping with tax collectors and sinners. They didn't like the way he was ignoring their Sabbath rituals. They had an issue with his disciples eating with unwashed hands. All along the way, the scribes, the chief priests, the elders have had issues with Jesus, who he is and what he's doing. Now he's cleaned out the temple, which, by the way, is making a statement about their legalistic ways of worship. And they've had enough. Here they come. You might say that Jesus is on their turf now. Before he was in Galilee, he was some distance away, but now he's on their turf, so here they come. And they ask him, what gives you the right, who gives you the right to do this? Now, if you stop and think about it, that's a fair question. It's a fair question. By cleaning out the temple, what is Jesus doing? He's saying, you're not worshiping correctly. Your style of worship is off 
What gives Jesus the authority to say that? So in one sense, they have a valid question. It is a valid question, but there's a deeper motive. They're not coming to him for information. Remember verse 18, they're trying to kill him. They're trying to plot against him. That's the motivation of their actions. They're trying to trap him with this question. They're trying to get him to admit something that they can use against him. And if Jesus came right out and said, if he'd come right out and said, you know what, God gives me this authority. In fact, I am God. If he came right out and said that, he would have been executed for blasphemy, which ironically is the charge that leads to his execution. But it's still not time yet. It's close. It's the Passion Week, remember. It's very close, but the timing is still not right. Still not right. So Jesus, instead of outright saying who he is, he answers their question with a question. Have you ever done that? Ever had that happen to you? Isn't that frustrating? Yes, it is. Now, this was actually very, a very common practice back then. People would get into arguments, and counter-questions were used frequently with this kind of argument. But Jesus' counter-question is masterful. It's masterful. He's doing two things here. First of all, he's avoiding the trap, right? He's avoiding the trap by not outright saying who he is or by what authority he has to do this, but he's also setting them up and he's giving them a clue. He's actually giving them a clue as to his authority. Let's read the question. Jesus, or the answer, Jesus' answer. Jesus said to them, I will ask you a question, answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, I love in here that Jesus says, answer me twice. In the Greek, that's in the imperative tense, which means it's a command, which means that it's almost like Jesus is using his authority to question them questioning his authority. But the use of the question here is masterful. Jesus goes back to John the Baptist's ministry and that is meant, what is meant by saying the baptism of John the Baptist. It's a reference to John's entire ministry. That's what Jesus is talking about. And he's specifically asking if John's ministry was from heaven or man. In other words, where did John get his authority? You're asking me where I get my authority. I'm asking you, where did John get his authority to do his ministry? Now, that question sets up the Jewish leaders. They are now between a rock and a hard place. And their reasoning here is sound. If we go on, their reasoning here is sound because they conclude, well, you know, if we say from heaven, which, by the way, saying from heaven is another way of saying from God. The Jews revered the name of God to the point that they would often avoid saying it, and out of reverence they would say heaven, but it meant God. If they admitted that John's ministry was from heaven, Jesus would, of course, ask them, well, then why didn't you believe him? And that's a fair question. The Jews are supposed to be devout God-fears. If they believed John was from God, why didn't they believe him? And we know they didn't believe him because we're told in Luke 7.30 that they rejected John by not being baptized by him. So for them to say that John's ministry is from heaven, they would have been forced to admit that they were wrong. And that would have wounded their honor. But furthermore... Admitting John was authorized by heaven would have affirmed John's message about the Messiah. What was John's message? After me comes one mightier than I. 
Jesus was baptized by John. John testified publicly that Jesus was the Messiah. So for the religious leaders to admit that John's message was from heaven, they would be forced to admit Jesus' authority is from heaven. Because you couldn't have one without the other. If John was from heaven, he testified to Jesus, then Jesus is from heaven. See, Jesus has given him a clue here. He's giving him a clue. He is, in a strange way, he's answering their question. If they were to just follow the thread of logic, they would have concluded where Jesus' authority came from. It's from God. And if they follow that logic, it would have been obvious it's true that Jesus is not coming outright and saying that his authority is from God, but at the same time, he's leading them down that logical argument, and they should have been able to conclude, this is obvious, his authority is from God. Why then did they not come to the obvious conclusion that Jesus had authority from God? The answer, they had already rejected him. They had already rejected Jesus. Their hearts were hard toward Jesus. And honestly, it didn't matter what Jesus said at this point. They had rejected him, and their rejection was going to continue. We reject Jesus when we reject his authority. Now, people do this all the time today. You know, they claim all kinds of things about Jesus. You've heard it, and I've heard it. They say he was a prophet or that he was a good person or that he was someone who was trying to get something started. But they reject the idea that he's God. They reject the idea that he's from God. They reject his divine authority, in other words. But you want to know something, and we could take this a layer deeper into our own lives. It's not just the world that does this. Christians do this today. They don't reject him as God or as Savior because that very fact would make them not Christian. We receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We, we bow to his authority as Lord and Savior, and that makes us a Christian, yes. But you see, Christians can reject Jesus' authority in specific areas of their lives. They can want to live a certain way or, or want to make a certain choice or want to go down a certain path and totally reject what God might be doing in their lives. That's the way Christians can reject the authority of Jesus. Many of you, I, I know, know uh, the pastor John MacArthur who pastors Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California. His original plan was not to be a pastor. He was into sports, he loved football, he loved basketball, he loved baseball, and that's what, that was going to be his life. That's what he was pursuing. That was his plan. He was not heeding the authority of where Christ was leading him. Not till a major car accident where he was thrown from a vehicle moving at 75 miles an hour. He admits in his own testimony he should not have survived that. That was God getting a hold of his life because he was on his path, not God's path. And that's the way we can get as Christians. We can ignore the authority of God in our lives. But when we surrender to God, when we give our lives to Jesus, when we come under his saving power, when we are washed of our sins, guess what? God doesn't stop there. When we come to God, we invite him to have full access to every part of our lives. There is no part of our life that he does not have the authority over. He has full authority over everything. You can't say, Jesus, you are my Savior, but stay out of my career. Jesus, you're my Savior, 
but stay away from my hobbies. You stay away from the little sins that I've got going on. They're not hurting anyone. It doesn't work that way. When the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life, he comes as a landlord, not as a servant. Now, he's a gentle, kind, compassionate landlord, yes, but a landlord nonetheless. And I would venture to say, because I know my own heart and my own errors in this area, I would venture to say there are some here who are not letting Christ into some area of their life. Is it you? How is it you? Maybe you want to do something. Maybe you want to go this direction. Maybe you want to live here. Maybe you want to go over there. Maybe you want to make some decision. Maybe you want to give your time to this or that, and you've never even considered Christ's will for your, this area in your life. Maybe you have sensed Christ's direction, and you're fighting it. You're ignoring it. It's time to stop ignoring it. It's time to submit. It's time to let Jesus have it all. Otherwise, even if you do get that thing or that decision does become what you were hoping, like Oscar Wilde said, it's still a great tragedy in life. Stop rejecting Jesus' authority. He's not only your Savior, He's your Lord. When we reject Jesus, or I'm sorry, we reject Jesus when we reject his authority. Secondly, we reject Jesus when we claim ignorance. We reject Jesus when we claim ignorance. Now, back to our text, Jesus has just delivered a punch to the representatives of the Sanhedrin. Now, how are they going to respond? Look with me at the text. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But we, shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they held that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. Jesus poses this question to the religious leaders. And by the way, this is done in public. This is at the temple. It's a public place. There are people everywhere. It's the time of the Passover. And probably there was a crowd following Jesus, because there always is, but even if there wasn't a crowd following Jesus, there's still people everywhere, and this little interaction between Jesus and the leaders has turned heads. You can bet it has turned heads. They approach Jesus, they ask him a question, people stop whatever they're doing and turn around and look, and Jesus poses another question, which has ratcheted up the tension. People all around are watching, and they're wondering, what is this? What are they going to say to this? Pressure's on. So the first thing they do is they retreat to have a private meeting in public. And as they consult one another, they rightly conclude their answers. Well, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? We talked about that. But notice their other option. If they say John's ministry was from man, that is, that it wasn't from God, but it was something of John's total invention, if they say that John thought this up and it was totally from man, it wasn't from God, they don't even finish the thought. Shall we say from man? Dot, dot, dot. What's going on there? Well, the text actually tells us plainly what's going on there. They were afraid of the people, for they, that is the people, 
all held that John was really a prophet. John was revered by the Israelites, by the Jews, not by the leadership, but by the people. The reason the leadership was hesitant to say John's ministry was from man is because they feared the people. The crowd accepted John as a prophet, and the leaders would become unpopular in the eyes of the people if they expressed that he was not a prophet, that he was not from God. But not only unpopular, they feared the crowd would retaliate. Luke chapter 20 records this same event, and he tells us in that story they feared the crowd would stone them if they said that John was from man. Fear. You look closely at this. What's going on here? Fear. The leaders are fear. They're actually dominated by here by fear. They fear Jesus's response if they say that John was from heaven, but they fear the crowd if they say that John was from man. They are dominated by fear. They can't go one way. They can't go the other way. So what are they going to do? They cop out. We don't know. Seriously, that's your answer. You don't know. Think of the implications by what they're saying. We don't know. They are admitting religious ignorance. They are saying, in effect, we can't tell the difference between God and man. That's what they're saying. And you see the absurdity of this. Because of their fear, they make themselves appear foolish. They are teachers of the law. They ought to know what the things of God look like. And instead, they make themselves look foolish. And that's what happens when one is dominated by fear. They become immobilized. These religious leaders who should have known when a message or a person was or was not from God are immobilized from fear, by fear and they claim ignorance and make themselves look foolish. They say, had they said, here's something interesting to think about. Had they said from man, had they owned up to what they really thought and said John was from man, at least they would have been bold enough to admit it even though they would have been wrong. They would have at least had the gumption to stand up for what they thought was true, but instead they claim ignorance. And by the way, ignorance is also rejecting Jesus. To claim ignorance is to reject Jesus, no matter what the reason is. No matter what the reason is. The, the leaders here were afraid. That's why they claimed ignorance. But that didn't excuse their response. Others may claim ignorance about who Jesus is, and maybe they're not motivated by fear. Maybe they are purely ignorant. Maybe they just don't even know the truth. But you see, even that is not an excuse for the rejection of Jesus. You can't get away from your responsibility to either accept or reject Jesus by claiming ignorance. Ignorance is no excuse. Even our own law states that ignorance is no excuse to breaking the law. Ignoritia gerus non exusat. That was Latin. Ignorance of the law excuses not. You cannot break the laws of this country and then claim ignorance and expect to be set free. Our government has seen to it that you can't use ignorance as an excuse. What's my point? If the human government has concluded that ignorance is no excuse, why should we be surprised that eternity works the same way? So what am I saying? Can a person go their entire life never hearing about Jesus and his offer of salvation and still be guilty of their own sins when they stand before him someday? Yes, that's what I'm saying. 
Now, I don't believe that anyone is in pure, total ignorance. They can be ignorant of a lot, but I don't believe there's pure, total ignorance. Why? Because creation itself is a testimony to the existence of God. And I know that's not specific revelation. Specific revelation is like from the Bible. That's general revelation, but still, creation is a testimony to the existence of God. The book of Romans speaks to this in Romans 1, 20 through 21. It says, for his invisible attributes... Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. What I'm saying is that ignorance is no excuse, but I don't think anyone is completely ignorant. Simply the existence of creation points to a God. But ignorance is no excuse either way. Ignorance is no excuse in the realm of eternity. You will not be able to stand before God and expect to enter into heaven simply because you were unaware of him, simply because you were unaware of his salvation plan. And by the way, there's a term that we use for this kind of thinking. It's called agnosticism. Agnosticism is not an option. Agnosticism is the idea that can't really believe anything. It's not really, you're not able to really know anything about God. It's really just a way of claiming ignorance. It's really what the representatives of the Sanhedrin are doing right now. They're simply claiming agnosticism in a way. We don't know. We can't know. But that doesn't fly with Jesus. Don't think that you can slide by because of ignorance. And my beloved family We can't use this excuse either. We should not allow ourselves to think that we'll be excused of our obedience to him or our disobedience to him simply because we didn't know about it. That's why God gave us his word. And the Great Commission tells us to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Why? So that we will be fully aware of his revelation in order to be obedient to what he's commanded us. So the option to be excused because of ignorance is no option at all. He's given us his sufficient revelation in his word so that you and I can be fully aware of all he is and all he wants of us. And that's why we study his word. But you know, there's another way that we as Christians can claim ignorance sometimes. We can claim ignorance about the obedience process. And let me, let me explain what I mean there. Maybe we don't claim ignorance about what we should do. Maybe we claim ignorance about how we should do it. You follow me? I'm going to give you an example. Let's say that you know a fellow Christian who's walking in sin. And you know, according to Matthew 18, you should be the one to approach that individual, confront them about their sin, but you think, well, I really don't know how to do that. I've used this excuse. I really don't know how to do that, so I don't. But you see, that that won't fly either. Like I said, I've been there myself. I understand the reality that sometimes we may not know how to approach something, but that's no excuse not to. Christ has called us to do hard. 
we should do hard. Yes, we're going to make mistakes all along the way. Better believe it. But claiming ignorance of the process is not an excuse. And if we don't know how, we learn how. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He's given us communication through prayer. He's given us the body of believers to help guide us. There are ways to learn how. And I want to say this up front. You know, any failure that you've had in this area, yes, there's grace, and yes, there's forgiveness, but there should also be growth. We should be moving forward and striving to do better, not remaining stagnant because I just don't know how to do this and I'm just not going to learn. When we claim ignorance, we're ultimately rejecting Jesus. Last point. We reject Jesus when we reject his authority. We reject Jesus when we claim ignorance. Lastly, and most terrifyingly, Jesus rejects those who reject him. Look at verse 33. So they answered, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these. Now, that is a sobering statement. On one hand, Jesus is masterfully avoiding their trap. Remember, they've come to trap him. That's their motive behind this. They know what he's claiming. They know his teaching. They know he claims to forgive sins. They've heard, and in some cases, they've seen the miracles. There's testimony after testimony after testimony of who Jesus is, of what Jesus has done. They come to him and they just want him to say with his own mouth that he's God or he's the Messiah or something that they can use to incriminate him. But Jesus, master of conversation, totally avoids that trap. He steps over it like a sharp-eyed hunter steps over a snare. But there's something else going on here too. By refusing to tell them where his authority comes from, Jesus refuses to reveal himself to them. He refuses to reveal what he's revealed to his disciples. He has refused to reveal what would give them life. And there is no greater tragedy than missing out on who Jesus is. Why does Jesus do this? Why doesn't he just openly say, I'm the Messiah, I am God, I am your only hope of escaping an eternity in hell? Why doesn't he just say that and then plead with them to believe in him? Because like I said earlier, they've already rejected him. Their hearts are closed and Jesus does not reveal himself where he is not wanted. Jesus does not bust down doors and force himself on people. He goes and he knocks and he enters if the door opens. You do not want to hear Jesus say, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He'll actually say it a little bit differently. When all the world is judged by Jesus on the great day of the Lord, at the end of time, Jesus will say to those who rejected him, I never knew you. Depart from me you workers of iniquity. Those who reject Jesus will be rejected by him. They will spend eternity in torment. I know this is a heavy topic. It's not a joke. It's not a myth. And it's certainly not worth risking eternity. 
If you reject Jesus here on earth, he rejects you forevermore. That's the truth of God's word. So I have to ask, do you know him? Will you stand before him and hear, well done, or depart from me? And if you're not sure, get sure today. Don't reject him. Don't think you can claim ignorance. Come to Jesus and let him change your life. How do we do that? It's a simple matter of repentance and belief. Repentance means to turn from. It's to turn away from sin. It's to turn away from doing life my way. And it's to turn toward Jesus and choosing his way. That's repentance. We repent and believe. And believe is simply trust. Trust in Jesus. Trust that he is God. Trust that he took the penalty for your sin when he died upon that cross. And trust that he rose again, defeating sin and death forevermore. Trust in that. And I'm going to add, right where you are, you can do this. Right where you are, you can pray a prayer in your heart that says something like, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I repent of that. I want to turn from my sin and follow you. I believe you died on that cross for me. I believe you rose from the dead. Save me, Lord. Praying that prayer from the heart, meaning it to Jesus, will lean on him. That's the repentance and belief and save you from your sins. And also, catch me afterward. I'll be around. Catch me afterward. You want to know more. You have some questions. But here, today, don't reject him. Eternity awaits from you. It's just a matter of where you're going to spend it. My beloved in Christ, Jesus does not say to you, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. We have the overwhelming privilege of Jesus revealing himself to us. The greatest tragedy is being rejected by Jesus not getting that thing our soul most desperately needs. But you know, contrary to what Oscar Wilde says, getting Jesus is not a tragedy at all. It's a triumph. We don't regret it when we come to Jesus. We don't get Jesus and think, is that it? It's the greatest thing ever. It's the greatest person ever. When we turn from our rejection of Jesus and we receive him, he satisfies the thirst of our soul. No one who receives Jesus ever calls it a tragedy. They say, this is a triumph. Why? By coming to him and being forgiven of our sins, he establishes with us the relationship that we have longed for. By coming to him, we belong to him. And he gives us himself. We don't hear, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. No, he opens himself up to us in an incredible relationship that lasts not just our lives, but throughout eternity. We are his, and he is ours. Have you ever wondered why the Bible speaks of God and his people in marriage terms? Have you ever wondered that? The church is called the bride of Christ. Even Israel was called his bride. Why does he talk like that? 
Because the relationship of marriage is the closest thing the Bible can use to explain what we have in Christ. It's so personal. It's like marriage. It is so deep and meaningful and powerful like marriage. Jesus rejects those who reject him, but he spills his blood on those who receive him. He opens himself to the point that he spills his blood. That's how much he loves us. What we have with Jesus is a relationship. So let me encourage you, deepen that relationship. Go deeper with Jesus. And how do we do that? Friends, we take advantage of his incredible accessibility. Remember when I said the temple was divided into courts? Court of the Gentiles, court of the women, all that. At the center of the temple was the Holy of Holies. It was the place where God's presence was. And it was inaccessible to the people. Only once a year was a selected priest allowed to enter the Holy of Holies, the place where God was. To everyone else, it was inaccessible. That's how holy God is. That's how inaccessible he was. But on the night Jesus died, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple and from the people was ripped in two from top to bottom. Why? Because Christ's death made God accessible. The temple is obsolete. The Holy of Holies is no longer needed. Jesus is totally accessible to you. So don't refuse his authority in your life. Don't allow ignorance to be an excuse. Come to him. Come to him every day. Lean on his sacrifice for you. The cross means, the cross means this, that your sin is wiped clean and his love is poured on you. And if we would take time to just sit in that reality every single day, that would deepen our relationship with him and that would change us in ways we can't even imagine. Deepen your relationship. Pray with me. Jesus, Savior, Lord, Judge, Holy One, Righteous One, you are good. You are what our souls thirst for. Jesus, help us for we are weak. Even though many in this room have embraced you as Lord and Savior, we still fall so utterly short of following you as we ought. We still reject you in many ways. God, forgive us. God, invade our lives. Permeate us with your presence. Change us from the inside out. Be our deepest longing, our greatest desire, and the most powerful drive in our lives. Deepen our relationship with you so that all other concerns, all other distractions are swept aside and we are left with the all-satisfying presence of our Lord and Savior. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.